Chapter Five, Part One of A Short History of Scotland by Andrew Lang, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Five, Part One, David and His Times. With the death of Alexander the First, April twenty fifth, eleven twenty four, and the accession of his brother David the First, the deliberate royal policy of introducing into Scotland English law and English institutions, as modified by the Norman rulers, was fulfilled. David, before Alexander's death, was earl of the most English part of Lothian, the country held by Scottish kings, and Cumbria, and resided much at the court of his brother-in-law, Henry I. He associated, when earl, with nobles of Anglo-Norman race and language, such as Morville, Umfreville, Somerville, Gospatrick, Bruce, Balliol, and others, men with a stake in both countries, England and Scotland. On coming to the throne, David endowed these men with charters of lands in Scotland. With him came a cadet of the great Anglo-Breton house of Fitzalan, who obtained the hereditary office of Seneschal, or Steward, of Scotland. His patronomic, Fitzalan, merged in Stuart, later Stuart, and the family cognizance, the Fest Chequi in Azure and Argent, represents the board of Exchequer. The earliest Stuart holdings of land were mainly in Renfrewshire, those of the Bruces were in Annandale. These two Anglo-Norman houses between them were to found the Stuart dynasty. The wife of David, Matilda, widow of Simon de St. Lise, was heiress of Walthoff, sometime the conqueror's earl in Northumberland, and to gain through that connection Northumberland for himself was the chief aim of David's foreign policy, a name fertile in contentions. We have not space to disentangle the intricacies of David's first great domestic struggles. Briefly, there was eternal dispeace caused by the Celts, headed by claimants to the throne, the Macheths, representing the rights of Lulach, the ward of Macbeth. In 1130 the Celts were defeated, and their leader, Angus, Earl of Moray, fell in fight near the North Esk in Farfreshire. His brother Malcolm, by aid of David's Anglo-Norman friends, was taken and imprisoned in Roxburgh Castle. The result of this rising was that David declared the great and ancient Celtic earldom of Moray, the home of his dynastic Celtic rivals, forfeit to the crown. He planted the region with English, Anglo-Norman, and lowland landholders, a great step in the Anglicization of his kingdom. Thereafter, for several centuries, the strength of the Celts lay in the west in Moidart, Knoidart, Morar, Mamor, Lochaber, and Kintyre, and in the western islands, which fell into the hands of the sons of Somerled, the Macdonalds. In 1135 to 1136, on the death of Henry I, David, backing his own niece, Matilda, as Queen of England in opposition to Stephen, crossed the border in arms, but was bought off. His son Henry received the honour of Huntingdom, with the castle of Carlisle, and a vague promise of consideration of his claim to Northumberland. In 1138, after a disturbed interval, David led the whole force of his realm, from Orkney to Galloway, into Yorkshire, his Anglo-Norman friends, the Balliols and Bruces, with the Archbishop of York, now opposed him and his son, Prince Henry. On August 22, 1138, at Cowton Moor, near Northallerton, was fought the great battle, named from the huge English sacred banner, the Battle of the Standard. In a military sense, the fact that here the men-at-arms and knights of England fought as dismounted infantry, their horses being held apart in reserve, is notable as preluding to the similar English tactics in their French wars of the 14th and 15th centuries. Thus arrayed, the English received the impetuous charge of the wild Galloway men, not in armour, 
who claimed the right to form the van, and broke through the first line only to die beneath the spears of the second. Prince David, with his heavy cavalry, scattered the force opposed to him, and stampeded the horses of the English that were held in reserve. This should have been fatal to the English, but Henry, like Rupert at Marston Moor, pursued too far, and the discipline of the Scots was broken by the cry that their king had fallen, and they fled. David fought his way to Carlisle in a series of rear-guard actions, and at Carlisle was joined by Prince Henry with the remnant of his men-of-arms. It was no decisive victory for England. In the following year, 1139, David got what he wanted. His son Henry, by peaceful arrangement, received the earldom of Northumberland, without the two strong places, Bamborough and Newcastle. Through the anarchic weakness of Stephen's reign, Scotland advanced in strength and civilization despite a Celtic rising headed by a strange pretender to the rights of the Macheths, a brother Wimid, but all went with the death of David's son, Prince Henry, in 1152. Of the prince's three sons, the eldest, Malcolm, was but ten years old. Next came his brothers William, the Lion, and little David, Earl of Huntingdon. From this David's daughters descended the chief claimants to the Scottish throne in 1292, namely, Balliol, Bruce, and Comyn. The last also was descended in the female line from King Donald Ban, the son of Malcolm Canmore. David had done all that a man might do to settle the crown on his grandson Malcolm. His success meant that the standing curse of Scotland, woe to the kingdom whose king is a child, when, in a year, David died at Carlisle, May twenty-second, 1153. Scotland becomes feudal. The result of the domestic policy of David was to bring all accessible territory under the social and political system of Western Europe, the feudal system. Its principles had been perfectly familiar to Celtic Scotland, but had rested on a body of traditional customs, as in Homeric Greece, rather than on written laws and charters signed and sealed. Among the Celts the local tribe had been, theoretically, the sole source of property and land. In proportion as they were near of kin to the recognized tribal chief, families held lands by a tenure of three generations, but if they managed to acquire abundance of oxen, which they let out to poorer men for rents in kind and labor, they were apt to turn the lands which they held only temporarily, in possession, into real permanent property. The poorer tribesmen paid rent in labor or services, also in supplies of food and manure. The Celtic tenants also paid military service to their superiors. The remotest kinsmen of each lord of land, poor as they might be, were valued for their swords, and were billeted on the unfree or servile tenants, who gave them free quarters. In the feudal system of Western Europe, these old traditional customs had long been modified and stereotyped by written charters. The king gave gifts of land to his kinsmen or officers, who were bound to be faithful, fidelis. In return, the inferior did homage, while he received protection. From grade to grade of rank and wealth, each inferior did homage to and received protection from his superior, who was also his judge. In this process, what had been the Celtic tribe became the new thanage. The Celtic king, Rig, of the tribe became the thane. The province, or group of tribes, say, Moray, became the earldom. The Celtic Mormer of the province became the earl, and the crown appointed vice-comites, sub-earls, that is, sheriffs, who administered the king's justice in the earldom. But there were regions, notably the West Highlands and Isles, where the new system penetrated slowly and with difficulty through a mountainous and almost townless land. The law and written leases came slowly up that way. 
Under David, where his rule extended, society was divided broadly into three classes, nobles, free, and unfree. All holders of a knight's fee, or part of one, holding by free service, hereditarily and by charter, constituted the communitas of the realm. We are to hear of the communitas later, and were free, noble, or gentle, men of coat-armor. The ignoble, not noble, men with no charter from the crown, earl, or thane, or church, were, if leaseholders, though not noble, still free. Beneath them were the unfree, nativi, sold or given with the soil. The old Celtic landholders were not expropriated as a rule, except where Celtic risings, in Galloway and Moray, were put down, and the lands were left in the king's hands. Often, when we find territorial surnames of families, D, of, this place or that, the lords are really of Celtic blood with Celtic names disguised under territorial titles, and finally disused. But in Galloway and Ayrshire, the ruling Celtic name, Kennedy, remains Celtic, while the true highlands of the west and northwest retain their native magnets. Thus the Anglicization, except in very rebellious regions, was gradual. There was much less expropriation of the Celt than disguising of the Celt under new family names and regulation of the Celt under written charters and leases. End of chapter 5, part 1. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.